You're here, I'm here, we're all here for this next episode of the Improv Comedy Connection podcast. I'm your host, Witchler. We're almost done with season four, and I am excited to share this conversation with David Escobedo with you. David has been improvising for years, first in California, but he is on a very interesting journey studying for his PhD in improv in the UK. No doubt there will be more to discuss when he concludes that program, but there's already so much to explore with him, and we do. If you want a full portion of positivity and thoughtfulness to go along with your improv and or improv community meal, you're going to want to settle in for this, the David Escobedo episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. It's funny, I've never read more literature against higher education than when I started doing higher education. There's so much like literature out there about how bad academia is for you. And you don't really run into it because until you're doing your PhD because it's all these academic journals and all this kind of stuff. And so, especially in connection to improv, the academic system is set up to reward convergent thinking. Like the teacher knows the yeah. answer and you have to get the answer that the teacher's thinking of. Whereas right. improv is like, there is no answer. We're gonna go on stage and the answer is have fun. Like, but that we don't know what the answer is. So. I've done a lot of studying to like divergent thinking of like this concept that I've been that I've been looked at is that um, set up situations where you don't know what the answer is. What happens if yeah. we do this? And the teacher guides the student through it, and maybe nothing happens. But like that is like, that journey is education as well. So we might have you know just since you settled in on that topic, I I think it is an interesting topic as it relates to improv. And I looked for this. I don't know if you pulled this comment. So maybe you pulled it, um, or maybe I just didn't scroll far enough. But you had posted something about education as colonialism or yeah. or colonizing. Yeah, education is a form of colonizing, colonization. So tell me about, because I feel like there's so much of improv that is focused on the educational element of it that you know how does that tie into that kind of concept or does it for you in improv oh i think it does like so i think when we hear the word colonization we automatically think of like england coming over or spain coming to mexico or like other countries kind of like european countries coming to kind of impoverished communities or whatnot and establishing their civilization but i i think it can be something as if we look at cultures like one that one more dominant culture or one culture that seeks to be more dominant infuses its shared virtues and its shared reference into another culture and what's happening right now which is neat and and also i guess kind of destructive at the same time is that like there's a lot of american improv that's starting to come into england and it's be, and in fact you can see it because when i first moved here it was called impro with no v it was called impro in england and i was corrected oh we call it impro here but now over the course of the few, last few years, people have gotten so interested in, in the United States version of improv mm. that now everyone's starting to call it improv and they're pursuing improv. And so when I come over here or when other people from the United States come over here is we're colonizing because what we're doing is we're saying, here are the influential people. It's going to be Viola Spolin. Yeah. It's going to be Neva. Here's the milestones. Oh, it's when the Herald was created and blah, blah, blah. When in actuality, the community that lives here, the culture that lives here does already have their own history. They have Keith Johnstone and theater sports and all this kind of stuff. And so and so that, that colonization, I kind of override the existing education. So education, although we think of it as like this harmless, benign thing, there actually mm -hmm. is uh, an ability for great harm. 
because mm-hmm. I can be drowning out to the local voices and the local community and the local messages. But there's also a harm in, like uh, Keith Johnstone is really big into saying that like um, bad teachers don't just not teach you. Bad teachers could actually harm your your ability to research or your ability for curiosity. They could make you apathetic. Like it's not just like, oh, you didn't learn two plus two is four. You actually now right. no longer have an interest in math and you, you now have trauma attached to math. So I think education is is a tool. It's like language. It's a tool, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's like art. It's it's not harmless. Is, is there a way to educate in a less harmful way? Putting aside the teachers who are like personally destructive in their techniques, etc. But just if if you're thinking of I'm going to be teaching this workshop, or I've been asked to give my thoughts. Um, or approach on this topic. How do you pull back uh, in a way that will maybe even augment what the local voices are or draw out new voices as opposed to, you know, just sort of planting your own seeds, you're sort of growing the others? Well, I think which, the way you phrase it already shows like a lot of consideration when you said augmented the local voices. Like that's already showing a consideration of I don't want to domineer what already exists. I kind of want to mm-hmm. accent or be an, another ingredient in the soup or ingredient in the salad that yeah. exists here. But I don't want to domineer. It won't be the monopoly. There is something called disciplinary landscaping by J.J. Royster. And disciplinary landscaping says that it's a metaphor. And it says that if I'm sitting... If I look at a map from a bird's eye point of view, I can see a lake, I can see the trees, I can see the mountain, I can see a boulder. But once I'm put down on the ground, I can't see the lake because the trees are in my way. And I can see the the mountain Mm -hmm. because the mountain's taller than the trees, but I can't see the boulder anymore because of the trees. And so Mm -hmm. that sort of limitation also applies to education. And as much as we think that like we're, we're objective and we've done our research and we know it works, there's actually a lot of biases. And some of the biases we can't control. It'd be like place and time. Yeah. Like I'm, I exist in this century. I can't help it. I exist in this century. Or the region. I, I, I've only been in the United States and I've only been in the United Kingdom. I have not been in Japan and see what Japanese improv is like. The disciplinary right. landscape scene asks us, and there's a direct quote. I probably could look it up if you want the direct quote. But there's a quote that says, if, if Western academia looked at at, at our research and our literature as what we know best, not what is best. Meaning like what, what we know the most of or what we see from our own personal perspective, not saying this is what's the only thing that's valuable. That's why I said in the way you phrase the question is I want to augment that already exists. It's just another option. Right. And so I think if we hold that humility as teachers, the humility as, as leaders of improv communities, that's that's probably one of the most helpful things. But the other thing that I don't know, I don't want to say it, it damages, but the other thing that influences is probably the best way of putting it is the very mm-hmm. tight binding of school systems and capitalism, especially when it comes to improv. Like I'm going to teach and I'm going to charge X amount of dollars. I'm going to teach at the school and the school needs to make X amount of dollars. And a capitalist system wants, the, a monopoly is beautiful for a capitalist system. If I'm the only improv game in town, I don't have to spend resources mm-hmm. on promoting. I don't have to worry about competition. I don't ever have to evolve. Everything I create can stay valuable for as long as I'm the only monopoly. So that that sort of capitalist undertonings between in a lot of our schools and a lot of our improv institutions mm-hmm. does damage the local voice because we it, we benefit from being a monopoly for a local institution. Well, and when people put themselves out there as teachers, then you know if that's going to be your primary source of income, or if you're going to travel, and now you kind of want to create opportunities, you're going to be more. I don't know, aggressive or intentional about it 
than perhaps someone who doesn't feel like they are in a position to do the same. Or there is a little bit of the prophet has no honor in their hometown (laughs) where you might feel like, well, maybe I don't have as much to offer where I'm at. And it takes a certain level of confidence or chutzpah or, or hubris to decide that you're going to put your stuff out there in a, in a, in a capitalist kind of way. And that sounds like a lot of the motivation between, behind colonization. I'm going to go discover. I'm yeah. going to go create. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into an existing ecosystem or environment and then create my own comfortable environment ecosystem. So like a lot of that rhetoric mm-hmm. uh, kind of transfers over. But I find that like a lot of really established or really skillful improvisers or veteran improvisers do have this like, I, I don't need to be the top dog. Like uh, my friend Paul Valancourt mm-hmm. says, like I've got out of, I'm, I'm out of the convincing game. I don't have to convince you I'm good. Yeah. I don't have to convince you that the skill is val- valuable. I'm just going to tell you. Then if you find it valuable, then you have it. And Jay Suko is very right. humble when you work with him. He's very like, hey, this is just one of the ways. That was one. Im- I'm just one improv teacher, and and so I noticed that about really skillful improvisers or or veteran improvisers. But at one level, it's probably also because they're established. Maybe they can they can rest on their laurels and not have to be so assertive and aggressive, where yeah. other people might be established themselves yeah. kind of have to do that. Do you think there's a generational aspect to it in the sense of, and I don't know if they, uh, in, in the UK, whether they would label the generations the same way they do here in terms of boomers versus, gen, well, probably not boomers. I don't know, maybe boomers, <laughs> Gen X and millennials to use the, the US-based terms. I see more uh, instructors uh, in the the boomer or more the Gen X probably categories, if those are meaningful to you. And having been in the U.S., I assume they are. Not seeing necessarily as many coming out of the millennial category as I would probably have expected by this point. Uh, I think I, I don't see uh, the United Kingdom culturally using as many generational categories as United States yeah. does. They do exist. Like if I do say boomers, they do know what I'm talking about. But like in the social media and in gradually talking to people, they don't say uh, boomers or Gen X. That that's not part of their vernacular. Yeah. But they but something that they have here that we don't really have in the United States is for being such a tiny country, for being such a tiny little island. There is so much division. There's so much like this is my city. Here's my language. Here's my accent in my city. Here's mm-hmm. the slang language at my city. I will never leave my city. And even if you leave the city, yeah. it's still like that city still in my blood. And so when I first moved here, like it was crazy because uh, I'm from Los Angeles, uh, originally from San Diego, but for Los Angeles. And in L.A., there's a lot of improv schools. You could jump, go to Iowa, the second city, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And so there's no thought of like, well, I'll perform at uh, the improv space in UCLA or I'll go perform down at the improv collective in Orange County. I- I'll perform wherever I go. So in England, it was crazy that there's so much public transportation that if I got invited to a place, come perform, come, will you teach us at Leeds? Oh yeah, totally easy. I'll just jump on a train. It's an hour trip. I'm there. I get to see a new part of the country. Amazing. Uh, what about Nottingham? Oh, totally. The train ride and I get to see more of the country. Right. Mm-hmm. And at that time, nobody was doing that or very, very, very few people are doing that. This We're talking about four years. This four is years when? Ago. Yeah, four, four years, years ago. Okay. And I was doing it and I started posting on social media, like, here's all the places I'm going to be. I'm going to be in Birmingham and I'm going to be in London and da, da 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 da. And for me, it was like a cool way to see all these different cities because I'm seeing still yeah. new here. And, yeah. and another thing is because I'm from another country, a, a tiny little city that people in England might go, why would you go there? That's t- There's nothing there. To me, it's still like, oh, cool, there's a church. 
oh my gosh, look at the landscape. You know, yeah. like I'm still kind of excited about it. Yeah. And other people might not be. It's a boulder. Yes. It's a nice boulder. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but that's because I was so used in LA, just jumping from school to school and you'd have to drive two hours just to get from to some performance spaces. We're, and now like now you fast forward and a bunch of teams are starting to travel because they didn't realize it's not that they didn't realize they could it was just the culture was like this is the city people would start an improv community in their city and mm -hmm. and they would be very defensive about it don't come to my community because i worked so hard to create this and then they would never leave i'm like well your community is not evolving you're not evolving as a teacher because you're not learning about new things going out there you're not seeing what else is being produced but like you evolve and you become better by seeing all these different styles and all these different teachers and all these different techniques. So there was no generational boundary, but there was definitely like regional, um, mm -hmm. these kind of like implicit uh, regional boundaries that they didn't really cross. Well, you you get that in some markets in the U.S. too, I think, and maybe in other parts of the world. And maybe it is a function of being small and feeling like there's a scarcity of support resources um patronage whatever it is um to to go from and you have to have a a wider view yeah that, i think that, that has a lot to do with it when i first moved here and it's it's evolved so much in the last four years even though covid like struck it down but it's evolved so much in the last four years that when i first moved here it was improv was so new that like i would talk to people there's someone who who is who's in england who has a very strong presence and they're like i hate the herald i hate the herald oh my god it's horrible i just don't like it and I, that's kind of curious to me i can understand like not liking the herald or whatever but like it's such like in doc so much it's so much entrenched in improv training that i asked well, well what do you yeah. think the herald is and he goes i don't know i don't know what the herald is i'm like so you just <laughs> kind of hate this thing that you don't know what it is huh. yeah. and so there's like this defensiveness because that's not within that person's education so it looks like a weakness that they don't know that so people, and so you definitely yeah. got these, like my friend, Chris Mead has a great quote. Um, uh, there's nothing scarier than small men with small empires. So you get these people in small cities or even mm -hmm. in big cities where have, they have a small improv community and they're insular. They don't want your, they don't want to lose any people because not only is that their income, that's their visibility. That's their validation. I have 50 people that come to this and I don't mm -hmm. want to lose one person. Cause that means I'm, I'm, I'm less valuable. So it, it, uh, lowers the, my magnitude as of the self. Um, so you got that a lot mm -hmm. and it's it's still there because in England, like, for example, Manchester has two, they call it football, but soccer games, soccer teams, and it's the same city and mm -hmm. fights will break out between the two fans. Like, it's like, oh, you're a Manchester United. Yeah. Oh, I'm a Manchester, whatever. Ah, fight, fight, fight. So there's still like this, like part of my identity is this city. So yeah, yeah. it's, and then even within that, you have sm uh, smaller subcultures that like, well, I'm a working class in this city. So, but now like four years later, there's starting to be a, a larger spread people starting to, to travel more and like improv festivals are starting to become bigger and people sharing their improv with another person so that is mm -hmm. bigger yeah it's interesting just thinking about the intra-city rivalries i mean the closest here is uh chicago cubs and chicago white Sox, which is about an hour and a half uh, two baseball teams for those who don't know and it's it's the same city um, it's too, there's like a geographical split, I would say, you know, South side, North side has a different kind of vibe to it. That's part of the cultural landscape. And that's going to be perhaps ingrained, but it, in some ways, do you feel like improv needs to ascend over that? 
to be good improv or is that just sort of part of what you're going to have in your communities if that's your community? It's interesting because I think that we're talking about two, not completely different things, but they are different. So there's something called in marketing called brand identity, meaning that if I'm, mm -hmm. if I buy, oh gosh, let's see, if I buy Disney's products, like what does that say about me as a person? Okay, I like creativity, I like funny stories, I like music. Right. So like in your example, like the Cubs and White Sox, like it's a brand identity. Like when if I'm a Cubs fan, what does that say about me? The the location I'm in, my the, how I party, how much I drink, whatever it is. Like, and so I think that carries over mm -hmm. into improv. And you're asking like, do, do we need to dissolve that? I don't know if if we have that much control over dissolving that, but at the same time, a lot of that has evolved over the last couple of years. I'd say in the last six years. So when I, mm -hmm. so I did my master's in improv, and my thesis was that our specific life experience and, and the voices that we bring are the most valuable things to the show mm -hmm. and then the whole team. Like our our experiences and our references are just like that's what creates diversity in all these different shows and everything. That, that was my MA and that was about four, that was four years ago almost. And so when I started doing that, there was and I was researching and interviewing and doing a lot of stuff. What was on the decline but still really big were the concept of these camps. I'm 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 a Del Close camp. Oh, I'm a Keith Johnstone camp. Oh, I'm a Spolin camp. And then beyond that, it's like oh, I'm IO, so I'm all about relationship. Oh, really? I'm, I'm UCB, so I'm all about game. And people would, would find themselves in that camp right. and argue the value of their philosophy against someone else's philosophy. And that's that brand identity. And that was big. And that yeah. was really big. Like people would have camps and they would say, oh, I, I don't like that style. And you would get like these kind of, it, would, it actually would, would hinder their improv because I've heard several stories of people who trained in game. And then they'd play with someone else, like from the annoyance mm -hmm. or someone who's a little bit more, maybe theater sports, a little more discovery based. And, and, and then they would, they would hate it because they didn't know how to support the other person's game. And it's because the other person's not looking for a game or trying to create a game. They're, they only have right. like to, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So they're looking for the nail and all they, yeah. and nothing's coming up and they're hating it. And they're not really doing improv. They're really, they have this kind of mechanism mm -hmm. inside them that knows how to trigger responses. So we already see that mm -hmm. kind of de-evolution of camps, which was kind of a philosophical uh, brand identity. Well, can we can we settle on that for a second, though? How how, do, how would you say it has devolved? Because I wonder, I, I'm I'd like to hear your thoughts on this because we've had this two two and a half year period where we haven't been able to gather in the same way. And we haven't been able to perform, at least not as often, in the same kind of way to be able to even say this is this is what we're going to do, because now we have a new platform for those who chose to take advantage of it, and some of those tools you just you, you, it was it just had to be new. So once once you go back. Are, are those things really gone or are they just kind of buried is maybe a way to ask about it? Or have we really moved past those camps the way you've I think described? we've moved past those camps. Okay. Um, and part of it is, is so like in times of war, the first thing you want to dismantle is this concept of communication. So in times of war, if I want my country to fight another country, if I want soldiers who've never met another soldier from that country to fight them, I remove all the yeah. communication and I start propaganda. I go, those people over there are monsters and they're doing the same thing. 
So what happens is these mm -hmm. camps do the same mm -hmm. thing. Oh, don't go to IO because that person that leads it is horrible. Oh, don't go to Second City because da 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 da. And that that retains their community. And that's how you get kind of like these people fighting each other. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. what really devolved it, and when I say devolve it, I don't mean uh, it got worse. I mean, it just kind of disappeared. It, it, it just, yeah, right, right. And I think right. that I what caused it wasn't necessarily, um, I think what caused it was social media, is that now we're able to like look at other people's shows mm -hmm. online and talk, oh, you do improv over here. That's kind of interesting. I'm going to talk to you about this. And, oh, your philosophy is actually very similar. You just use different jargon than I do. So I think social media mm -hmm. before the before COVID, and just this proliferation of communication is really what made us go, oh, these camps are meaningless. I, I, I can go to a Dell Close Marathon and I can still mm -hmm. go to a Keith Johnstone uh, theater sports thing and still have a great time and learn two different styles and meet people in a good way if I'm open to it. So I think that's what really caused it to, to really just, well, that, and I think the other thing that really caused these things to, to dissolve was, of course, in during COVID, we had the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement. And so a lot mm -hmm. of these these institutions fell off their pedestal it's like oh how come all your teams are all white men or like historically second city not second city but a lot i mean second city yeah but a lot of other improv institutions like there's seven people on a team there's five men and two women there's the pretty girl and there's the funny girl yep. and then there's the working class and so there are these specific roles it wasn't just like you guys have good chemistry it's like right. no i need to cast the specific role so i think that th that yeah. sort of ideology is gone because because people are communicating to each other and then also because we they fell off their pedestals we went oh maybe they're not well yeah and yeah. they even disappeared at least for a period of time and now it's in an interesting time that you've got some of these institutions restarting yeah. and rebranding you know just in the last month or so we've had an announcement of a second city board which is sort of an interesting collection and i don't know what the messaging from that is supposed to uh, tell us <laughs> about second city and then you've got io restarting in yeah. uh, in earnest yeah so will they take will they take the same approach is it here let's let's put the camp back together and teach on and this I think they can but i think that would work against them because i think people are realizing even if you say that, unless you make me sign a contract, I'm just going to go somewhere else. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to come and do your intensive for this month, yeah. and then I'm going to go somewhere else and do someone else's intensive and learn all these different things. Unless part of, uh, I guess, if you if you think, well, IO is relationships, so that, if that's, you know, that sort of um, shorthand for IO, and you go to IO for yeah. that product, yeah. then that is the experience if they decide that's their best marketing move and so that may end up reinforcing that camp over time because there is an element i think where you know you talked about brand identity and in a certain sense i think brand identity can be a reflection of who you are that you are projecting onto something but then it can also go the reverse where the brand you try to tie yourself to because you're trying to say something about yourself you know, maybe it's aspirational, you know, I want to be seen as someone who is at this level. And so I'm going to say all the things that go along with this particular school or this instructor or, you know, the personality centric kind of stuff. And all of a sudden that ends up being kind of a distortion. For sure. But I don't, so I don't know if that necessarily would be at the whim of the institution. I do think that there's a lot of manipulative I think improv draws a lot of manipulative, narcissistic people, because when the training says 
worry about the collective, uh, follow the follower, that manipulative narcissistic people realize, well, I can make that go just one direction to me if I, if I do that well enough. Because yeah. especially when I, when I was here, for you hear this rhetoric of family. We're like a family. We're like a family here. And it, 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 it that family rhetoric sounds wonderful because you're like, oh, cool, you care about me. But what it means is we're like a family. We're insular. And if you betray the family, I'm going to kick you out because we're a family and I'm protecting my family which is a very different experience. Right. Like we, Oh, I thought, I, I thought we were family and that's why it can lead to like trauma. So I think that if what you're talking about happens, it's more like a cult of personality than it is like uh, the institution right. saying we're going to set out to be insular. That's what I, that's just what I assume. So tell me why you think improv draws <laughs> narcissistic personalities in a general sense. Um, obviously they can, you know, it can be a tool to use as you've described, but, but you said it draws them. Is it an easier tool than others? I, well, I think it draws all type of, all types of people. Someone, I think it was Casey Beeler from, um, PGRAPH said that it also draws people with ADHD who have a hard time focusing because there is so much stuff you have to pay attention to. You have to pay attention to the emotions, the words, the sounds, the people off stage, the audience, that people that, that have that focus on a lot of things. It allows them to focus and kind of zone out because that's what the brain wants to do. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it and then also it, it also draws people with anxiety that wants to work on their anxiety because that whole like you are enough and whatever you do is wonderful gives releases mm -hmm. a lot of that daily anxiety, that daily pressure. But to answer, so I think it draws a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, I think that it's a built in uh, cult. It's a built in worship mechanism that I can blame on someone over here. It's not me that said this. I can quote this person over here. Keith Johnstone said that um, uh, improvisers need a guru because they need a guru to go like, it's okay for you to make a mistake or it's okay for you to look silly. I say it's okay for you to look silly because this isn't the real world. This is just a rehearsal studio. You go back outside to your accounting job or you go back outside mm -hmm. to your customer service job. That's different. But here as your guru, I give you like permission to be silly. And so I think a lot of people... Oh gosh, I think a lot of people look for that. And so if you're a narcissistic person, if you're someone that like I'm I want to um, I want to get money from people and I want to get validation from people, it's kind of easy to guide all the it's easy to reframe a lot of the the elements of improv in that direction. So that's why I think it draws people like that. I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's all those people like that, but I do think people like that. Let me is is your master's thesis is was that different than your PhD thesis? Yeah, so my wife and I moved to England and the student, our student visa was an ability for us to stay in England. And so I got my master's, which only was a year and her undergrad is in travel tourism. So hers is three years. So I had the option of like, well, I guess I'm moving back home for two years and waiting for her to come back or I can get my PhD. And I like the experience uh, with the university so much that I was like, I'm just going to roll on my PhD. And I love researching improv and, this, and England is amazing. And the people I've met are so nice. Um, so the master's is in um, that your unique voice, your unique life experience is the most value thing, valuable thing you bring to the stage. And now my PhD is an extension of that mm -hmm. because it's like now that I've told everyone to share their life experiences, there's now the additional challenge of don't share it all at once. And also now you have to listen to each other to collaboratively build a scene, to collaboratively build a moment. Because if everyone's talking at once and no one's listening, then you're not actually going to really build anything. You're going to build white noise. So now my PhD is like, it's evolved a bit, but it's about what's the benefit of improv training. And I'm talking a lot about collaboration and the sharing of cultures and how communities are built during an improv show or communities are built during your improv team. And they might be temporary communities. 
but you all have shared virtues and shared values and shared references and whatnot. But yeah. <laughs> when you talk about the community in a show, are you including the audience in that community or is this more about the performers? Community? I would say that there's two communities kind of like a bubble within a bubble. And the first bubble would be like the, the voice of the team. And then when they go, Form that one show, whatever mm -hmm. audience, whatever the chemist chemical makeup of the audience is right there, that's another community within that larger community. And that one's definitely way more temporary. It's that show for that mm -hmm. night. And you can see, I'm sure everyone's experienced this, where you've done a show that was so good or whatever it is. And then you talk to someone like next week and it's someone that, was, oh, I saw that show where you did that one move where you, you pretended you were marching down the, the center of the audience. And that shared reference point, no one else that wasn't there doesn't know that shared reference point or, or that emotional catharsis and everything. So that community right. exists because that is a shared reference. And then there's shared virtues, depending on like, what did we like or dislike or what was good or bad about the show or whatnot. But yeah. Temporary community. Is there a characteristic that draws those uh, shared references, those memorable pieces that um people bring up to you a week or so later like you described when you, say characteristics, you mean of an individual like a person's characteristics or no i think about the moment i guess let me let me just sort of when you mention that what what occurs to me i don't know why i just think of an early show that i saw i was at second city and uh it was in the improv part of the show and it was uh i think it was a freeze game and someone came out and they just had their hands in front of them. And the line was, we bring you toast from our land. That was the line. That was <laughs> 30 years ago. <laughs> For some reason, that line sticks with me. And I feel like the reason it sticks with me is it felt like it was just, just blurted out just from whatever the subconscious was. And is the subconscious where we find those moments that turn into shared references or, or can they also be things that are just sort of plotted that is, out? That is a very full question for me to answer. I have a lot of thoughts on that. I figured you would. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone else that's listening could, could, could uh, relate to this, but my wife and I uh, we're both in this thing called the Chester Improv Collective. And all it is is a long form improv jam. That's really all it is. We get a bunch of people together okay. who have experience and we just do like six sets and we leave, right? Okay. So if my if if we both go together, we were like, oh, remember that scene where where uh, so-and-so did something? Yes, that's funny. We both laugh about it. Mm -hmm. But if she goes and she comes back and I'm like, how was it? And she'll be like, oh, it was so funny. We pretended to be turtles and then someone forgot the third turtle. And to me, I'm like, that's that sounds creative, but that's not funny. But to her, she's like laughing. Oh, my God, it's hilarious. Yeah. And then I'll go and then I'll come back. And she's like, how was it? I'm like, oh, my God, Rod threw chicken feed at, at Neve and it was hilarious. And I'm laughing. But I think one of the reasons you can tell it creates community is because as much as you understand cognitively those words that I'm sharing and you can you can see like mm -hmm. it's a little creative and everything, you still don't have that like, oh, my God, I was there when it was created. So I think that. Keith Johnson said that I wish people were more uh, concerned about being authentic than being funny because being authentic is funnier. That I right. think that those moments, like you're talking about the subconscious, that if we have these collective moments of discovery, mm -hmm. Renee Brown says that what 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 really divides people is shame. Like if, if you and I are talking and I say something shameful about you, oh, I don't like that shirt. 
then like you're gonna be like, oh well, I don't really like David anymore because now I feel shame whenever I see him. Mm-hmm. But then if we have what Brene Brown calls collective moments of joy or collective moments of sadness, if you and I are sitting in the audience of an improv show, and someone does something on stage and they're like talking into the cell phone in the ground and we both laugh we didn't talk about it did you think that was funny but we both laugh at the same time mm-hmm. we have this collective right. moment of joy and we see each other laughing we're laughing and both of us have this like oh you're like me or i'm like you. yes it's this magnitude of right. the self but it can also happen with sadness where it can be collective moments of sadness we go see a sad movie like big fish by tim burton and at the very end oh my god it's so sad we're both crying but we didn't talk about it um, right so those collective discoveries those collective moments of emotion i think are what build community and 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 Brene brown kind of talks about because she's a sociologist like it brings humanity back together as opposed to shame and anger pulling people apart and social media kind of pulling mm-hmm. people apart these moments of being in the same room at the same time laughing at the same thing which is a shared virtue is like that that brings us back together and it makes us feel seen yeah being seen is such an important aspect of the human experience that I think is also what you want to see in a theatrical experience. Uh, Yet I don't know that we have made that a goal of our improv communities necessarily. And it strikes me that that is a different, deeper goal to drive for than, well, let's do something that the audience will like or that we will like. So... I, I'm so I've written I've written or, or curated eight books on improv and with this one series I have going is called answers from improv teachers and all all I do mm-hmm. is I just ask a question about improv how is fear present in improv um how has COVID affected your improv whatever it is and then I have this this kind of panel of teachers like eight to twelve teachers and they just answer okay. I don't and I don't gatekeep I put whatever their answer is and I publish it in a book and it's a whole concept of like I could go well that's a good answer that's a bad answer but I don't that disciplinary landscaping mm-hmm. is maybe I don't see the lake on the other side of the trees right. so I'm just gonna put everybody's I have humility everybody's is up there it's good so so I answer from heart so what the question one question that I asked recently and and it, this is in the book that's coming out it's not out yet is what mm-hmm. do you think is overrated in improv? Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of an interesting question and because, because of the answers I got. And so mm-hmm. many people said validation. So many people said validation is overrated in improv. And Viola Spolin talks about how like the authority mechanism of validation and appeasing and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff is very strongly entrenched in the United States, the American experience. And in art, it should just be thrown out. Like you're talking about, like, did we enjoy mm-hmm. it? Did we have a good time? Right. Um, and so I think that's also something that narcissistic people manipulate because validation when you come in if you've never done improv before and you're you're a newbie and you do like a short form show and everyone's laughing because these mechanisms set you up to succeed very well you could even you can be confused you can be you could be ironically detached and people probably laugh your friends and family in the audience and now you're like i'm Mm -hmm. funny a group of people a group of my peers are in the audience and they're smiling and laughing at me and that feels fantastic mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. what some institutions do is instead of teaching improv they create this mechanism for validation and they create tears and they go okay well uh, you know you're you're fantastic but this next group we're gonna tell them the secret and this next group they learn the secret format if you haven't read amy seaham's book whose improv is it anyway mm-hmm. awesome book and she talks about subcultural mm-hmm. capital and when io was new this is what they did is they'd go like oh here's all like the level one classes and here's oh now you're in level seven you're like in the you're in the great class 
Oh, but Del Close is teaching this really special class on weekends. You come to that. Oh, and then also you didn't know about this other class where he's teaching the organic opening. You didn't know what the organic opening and these terms also mean something too. Like these terms are have become yeah. currency. So I think that that validation is dangerous. And when you do improv long enough, or maybe I would just say like one thing I've worked on improv in my journey is removing my ego as much as possible as I'm doing improv. I don't mm -hmm. need to be funny. I don't need to be the best person on stage. I don't need to be any mm -hmm. of that stuff. I don't need to do good improv. I need to do improv with my scene partner as opposed to doing improv mm -hmm. at my scene partner. I just need to connect with my scene partner and make them feel comfortable and highlight their ideas. And if they're doing the same, we're going to look three times as funny. But I think that validation is really, it's, and it's kind of hard to divide that because it's, it's a show and there's audience members there. You know, you kind of want to entertain them because not only do you get laughter right. as a validation mechanism, you also get money from selling the ticket sales. And then later on, depending on who you are, you get status in your community. Oh, we sold out our show. Yeah. And all three of those things are very dangerous to the actual skills learned in improv, but they're very prevalent in improv institutions and improv communities. And I, I'm not saying we should get rid of them either, but I'm saying those things... I think that this this capitalist method is what the most abrasive thing to like what we teach in improv. There's just a post today as you and I are recording that Chris Griswold put up on, I forgot how he phrased it exactly, but it was like, when did you, or, or how did you get over needing the laugh? And to me, I think that is the validation. And when you think about like, like the 101, the early on pursuit of improv is just sort of a, a joyful, I'm just trying it on, I'm enjoying the, the ride. And then at some point it turns and now it becomes this obstacle course that you've got to get past to show that you've made it. I don't know. I, I, uh, I think I benefited from the fact that it was, it was never my first and primary goal to reach a certain level. So it was just sort of, it was a, it was a pursuit that I wanted to, I just wanted to keep pursuing it. And then at some point you do it long enough, you feel like, okay, like you said earlier, in terms of like Paul Valencourt's comment, I, what did he say? I don't need to convince anyone or I'm not in the convincing game anymore. You just kind of get over yourself or you feel I'm fine. I can do what I need to do and just enjoy the experience. And you move more towards the the group experience, the group goals, which should be more rewarding. And it's a whole different approach than if it is all about, I need to get a certain, you know, kind of juice out of this squeeze. Oh, that, I think that's fantastic insight. And I, I totally, it resonates with me. And I think what happens is as we get further and further in improv career, this whole concept of always be learning and also try to improv with everybody, any, everybody, every level, every skill level, every philosophy, because then you become a more well-rounded improviser. And what happens is you start being able to learn to do improv with people that are challenging, with people that are new, don't know what they're yeah. doing. And you start becoming a person that can welcome people to the space. I don't know what your background is. We might not even speak the same language, but now I'm getting skillful enough to mm -hmm. where I can welcome you to the space and welcome your contributions and listen, observe, empathize with anything you do. And as we get stronger and stronger with that, we realize that the group, like you mentioned group, like the group that we're, that we're creating, the group that we're welcoming is not just each other, but the new people are the audience members that come every single night. That's also the group. I'm so good that when I welcome people to space, the people I'm welcoming are also the audience members to this space. So right. that they're part, they're like player zero. They're a part of this collaboration that we're doing together. 
-hmm. you mentioned something at the beginning about validation and i wanted to look up the person who said it before i used this quote because i think this quote i think is, is awesome it's janet okay. coleman in the book the compass which is about the first improv team in the world is the compass then with the compass players yeah. and yeah. the quote is laughter spontaneous bursts of approval can be a dangerous intoxicant to the performing a highly distracting and addictive drug and so like you're saying like especially mm -hmm. when you're new and you're just learning these games you're like oh that laughter is addictive but it's also distracting you so people start like going for the mm -hmm. pun game or people start looking for punchlines. and actually i love puns like puns are great my whole thing with puns are typically when people throw out a pun they're done They'll throw out that pun and they'll just kind of mug the audience or they'll wait for the laughter and they'll stop. And it's like, right. oh, you stopped the scene for you to get a laugh. And now yeah. it's my job to get the scene back on track. You've made this meta right. observation that everyone in the audience knows. Like, we all see this. It's not the reality of the scene. And now me as your scene partner, mm -hmm. I have to get your, the scene back on track. But that's distracting. That's distracting mm -hmm. from developing the reality. I mean, we could talk about reality because like, we're talking about welcoming the group together and what we're building, what we're constructing is a whole reality together. Realities are nothing but shared mm -hmm. references and shared virtues. Like it's, it's crazy. We are building reality. How do you coach? How do you teach towards these ideals? Oh gosh, that's a great question. I think that what I try to do is uh, I give other people credit, especially earlier on pre social media being so big improv was predominantly an oral history. And mm -hmm. you would get moments where because that was actually a flaw. And so you get moments where people would try to take other people's ideas and rebrand them. There's the whole like issue with uh, Matt DeMott and Joe Forsberg and how he took over. Her. She was her aunt. He was her. He, she was his aunt and took over her whole thing and took her notes and everything like that. But you also have Del Close saying, here are the rules to improv. And I don't know if it was Del Close or Sharna rebranding it. But actually, it was the rules mm -hmm. that Ted Flicker and Elaine May brought up. So this oral history, people try to adopt, adapt right. it and say, these are my ideas because now you're coming to me for my classes and everything like that. Um, so the way that mm -hmm. so so when I teach, I try to like, this is where I got this exercise or this is where I got this quote. Mm -hmm. I try to give other people credit, especially if they're from a marginalized community, especially if they're not part of that mm -hmm. white cisgender male group that's been dominating for years. I try to go look at th these like it's kind of like the ratitude quote improv anyone can improv you know kind of thing it, great improv can come from everywhere but like so i do that first and foremost the second thing is i try to remove my ego like i try to remove my ego as a performer but also as a teacher so if a student like confronts me i don't think that that's a bad thing for me i don't think that's a flaw for me over a student questions why do we do this because sometimes teachers will get insecure when it when a student just yeah. out of curiosity, not even out of anger or anything, just goes, why do we do this? And they don't know the answer. Just do it. Right. And I, I look at every opportunity like, mm -hmm. well, let's talk about that. Why do we do this? And let's talk about this because everyone in the room, it can make a better thing. So I try to have a lot of humility and I try to try to say this is where I got this from. I try to give credit where credit's due. And mm -hmm. what's weird is weird from my perspective is when I first moved to England, the first year or two, I started having people go, why are you such a feminist? Why are you fighting for women? Why are women's rights such a big deal? And I was like, I don't feel like I'm doing anything different than I do in LA. But what happens is I do notice that in performances and in rehearsals, women get interrupted about three times as more, more than men do. And men's ideas get, get, I'll be like, women, we already had an idea. Why are you, why are you inventing a new idea? Why'd you tag that person out? And so mm -hmm. I, I got very big and don't interrupt, let, let that person finish their thought. And I'm just telling people in general, don't interrupt. I'm not saying don't interrupt a woman. I'm just saying, just don't interrupt each other. 
And it felt like to most men that I was telling men not to interrupt women when I'm just saying, don't interrupt. And it's, and I think it's because a lot of men just feel mm -hmm. like, okay, well, I'm going to go. I got your idea. You don't need to finish your sentence. I don't know what you're going to say. Right. Um, and I'm like, but there's so much more than the cerebral words that are being said. There's the emotions. And sometimes silence is the offer. Mm -hmm. You don't need to fill the space. So I try to, I try to say like, um, let, you know, I do a lot of stuff with silence. I love silence. Uh, I have this uh, mm -hmm. phrase coming in with nothing. And I do like this whole workshop on coming with nothing. Cause I think like when you're off stage, you're like, Oh, that's a really funny idea. Oh, let's bring this on stage. It's gonna be great. And you do it. And it's never as funny as you think it is, but then you might just do that little, huh, or that little observation on stage and it just kills because it's authentic. And the audience relates to that because I think right. the audience can read. I always say, don't let them, don't let them catch you acting. Don't let them catch you performing. You just stay in the moment. In the minute that I see David performing, that I'm watching David and I'm not watching this character that's in that moment right there. So this coming with nothing. Can, go ahead. Can, can you uh, just sort of expand the comment, don't let me catch you acting, what you mean by that? So I, I kind of got that philosophy from my very, very first uh, acting teacher, Monica Ionessa, and I still keep in touch with her. She was my high school acting teacher. She's the one that introduced me to improv. Mm. She's amazing. But we... So there's a lot of like studies in the concept of performing. And I think to a certain level, you see a lot of it in the improv community where you see people performing improv. And what they're doing is mm -hmm. they're trying to convey to the audience members, to the greater community, I know how to improv, watch me use these improv mechanisms. I'm yes anding this. Oh, I'm heightening my emotion. Oh, I, and so they're not literally connecting with their scene partner. They're literally like conveying an expertise. They're performing an expertise so that they don't lose status mm -hmm. within their community as opposed to, which is like a form of validation, but like, as opposed to like you're saying earlier, like, am I having fun with my scene partner? Am I having fun with the audience? Is this something I'm enjoying? Mm -hmm. Because that become, concern becomes like the access to more opportunities. Oh, more people want me to be on their team. Oh, I might be asked to be a teacher here next year. Oh, blah, blah, blah. So that happens in improv. Uh, Paul Sills said, don't perform being human, just be human. Just be human on stage. We want to see human mm -hmm. behavior on stage. We don't want to see you, you know, rub your eyes and, and take this voice because you're crying. And it, that That's not, although like we as an audience member go, okay, you're performing sadness. Sometimes sadness is just being right. quiet or maybe stopping in the middle of a sentence. Right. But don't perform it because once you perform it, the audience members goes, oh, David, I see what you're trying to get at. Instead of going, instead of being lost in the mm -hmm. moment of what's happening. So it, it kind of comes back to authenticity and vulnerability. Like my friend Vanessa Anton works a lot with vulnerability. Mm -hmm. and I, I love that stuff, but it's not for everyone. It takes mm -hmm. an amount of strength to be vulnerable on stage. You have to, you have to remove your ego and look silly, look bad sometimes. Like, so I, I just try to, but you know, we perform in everyday life too. You know, like I go to like get a cup of coffee and I'm not necessarily super mm -hmm. genuine with the person getting my order. I'm just, Hey, can I have this? Hey, have a good day. See you later. And I'm smiling. So this concept of performing is, a mechanism to show up by peers in my community, I know what the social norms are. So that means I should still continue to have access to these resources because I acknowledge what these social norms are. Because if I deviate from that, mm -hmm. there's a whole thing, especially if you're an immigrant, there's something called the immigrant's ear that Mike Nichols and Viola Spolin used to talk about a lot. If I deviate from that, that means I have less access to resource. People don't want to work with me as much. I go, my opportunity mm -hmm. disappears. So sometimes per being performance is being like a defensive mechanism. So sometimes people do that on stage. And I, I would rather yeah. see people be human on stage than to see performers. Like some of the most craziest, funniest moments just come from people like lit, the genuinely reacting to each other. You said vulnerability isn't for everyone. Would you say that vulnerability needs to be something for every improviser? 
Well, if I were to come back to disciplinary landscaping, I'd say, I, I'm not someone to say you need to do this. I have to say, like, from my mm. perspective, what I enjoy sharing, I enjoy sharing this stage with people that are vulnerable. And and part of it is when people yeah. hear vulnerable, they have this weird, like, like they have this concept that it means childhood trauma. Like, if I say be vulnerable on stage, they go, oh, I don't want to bring up that thing that's going to make me cry. And I always try to hammer home. It just means being authentic. If when you go to McDonald's, you like French fries the best more than just that's all you have to say. That's being vulnerable. It's authentic. It's like, I'd rather get two things of French fries than another burger. And I can, I can run with that in a scene. It doesn't have to be, oh my God, when I was seven, my father did this. And I, it doesn't have to be that. It just has to be honest. Right. But people equate vulnerability with something that's painful. Like Brene Brown does tons of stuff on vulnerability and shame. And, and, and so like, sometimes you can weaponize vulnerability. Like you can say, well, I told you this. So now I expect a certain reaction from you. Right. Um, or I'm doing this to get attention. And if I don't get that attention, then I've failed. And so there's like, there's vulnerabilities, like a term that has a bunch of different shades to it. But I do love sharing the stage with people that are vulnerable. I have that ability to be vulnerable. I like the way you uh, sort of put some color to the, to the word, because it, to me, there's an element where uh, the, when I think of vulnerable, I think of being authentic and human in many ways because to be authentic and human is a vulnerable position i think that you put yourself in and if you are acting that is putting yourself out there as a human so to me they kind of they kind of end up going together but it is it is a term or a state or whatever that is there's a lot of different ways you could look oh at yeah it. and then also, this concept of vulnerability yeah. is uh, it's tied into fear and shame, but it's also tied into culture. Like one of the things that. So, like, for example, like a funeral, like there's certain cultures that when they come to a funeral, they're supposed to be quiet and let like the, yeah. the religious person speak and they might sob and they might wear all black. But then there's mm -hmm. some cultures where you're supposed to be loud and throw yourself on the casket and show how much you miss that person. Mm -hmm. And then there's some cultures that have wakes where they celebrate the person's life. And so. Those cultures mm -hmm. have performances, have ways that they express that their their grief, and so vulnerability is is also cultural because oh gosh, so it's how yeah. we express ourselves. Oh my gosh, there's a lot. There, <laughs> someone said that one of the most vulnerable things are gestures, because gestures are casual touchstones of communication. So, for example, just shrugging. Like I, I, I'm so vulnerable mm -hmm. because I, I don't know if you know exactly what I meant there. Like I didn't say I'm a doctor and this is the circus and we need to fix the bicycle. I just shrugged. And that's such a, that's the way mm -hmm. I felt and I'm being vulnerable. I hope you interpret it the right way. Um, but that casual gesture such mm -hmm. as nodding or, but, and they're also cultural, like in India, there's the, and I think it's Northern India, there's the head kind of, you rotate it side to side and it means something different. I can't translate it depending on the context right. and when you do it. So yeah, vulnerable is is also potentially people feel like it's also opening yourself up to be hurt at the spot that means the most to you. That's why people avoid vulnerability. It's like if I put mm -hmm. up a performance, if I put up a shell and you attack that, psh, I don't care. That was a shell. That wasn't really me. But if I'm vulnerable and you attack that, right. you've really attacked my core values. You've you've attacked that is not does not get magnified. Mm -hmm. It hurts people. Yeah. I want to come back to I forgot exactly sort of the the the, uh, the verbiage we were using, but I want to talk about edits a little bit. Okay, cool. cool. Yeah. So edits have 
have a, a potentially group aspect to them, but they're generally individual in the way most teams will do things. It's a tag out. It's a sweep. It's a, a jumping forward. It is a individual move that I think is most of the edits that are taught and performed. Is that counterproductive <laughs> to having a group experience or, or for someone to be a, to, to drop their ego uh, because it is, can be an egocentric position you put yourself. Uh, that is a fantastic question. Oh my gosh. It's a fantastic question. Um, I, so one thing I think is kind of contradictory or hypocritical about improv is that as much as I talk about ensemble and the collective and we're working together to make space for each other, our journeys are entirely on an individual basis because my training and my shows mm -hmm. are specifically idiosyncratic to your shows and your training and when you saw did certain things. So our journey is individual, even though the quest is to create this collective, this, this ensemble collaborative. So I, I think that when you see an edit, it's funny because in my rehearsals and classes, this is something I always point out. And if you're a teacher or you've done improv for a long time, you see it, but you just don't really say anything about it. It's times when like yeah. one person goes to edit and the other, you see another person on the other side move at the same time. And you're like, I want to stop and point mm -hmm. out that we all knew that was the time to edit. We all felt the greater rhythm of the scene. Like that was the time to edit. And it becomes a reading of energy more than it becomes like a reading of like, this cognitive thing. P-Graph has this, have this book, Do It Now, that breaks down edits the best I've ever heard edits broken down. There's like, here's the seven times you edit. When information is, when important information has just been relayed, when a funny joke has just happened, when important information is about to be relayed and you cut it off right before, like they have these seven, and like, this is the best I've ever heard people like break down the edits. But I always say, so, so, I'm uh, uh, sorry. I'm kind of going off on edits because it's a fantastic, a fantastic question. Our edits individual. I have to say that everything we do is 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 as an individual on stage with the goal of, of reacting as a collective. So in my PhD, what I did, mm -hmm. which I really, which I thought was very interesting was, so I produced a show and then at the very beginning before any improv training, I interviewed everyone as an individual. Who are you as a person? Where are you at in life? Blah, 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 blah. And then I interviewed them as a collective. You know that game where it's like, say one word at a time, or we're going to do like one word story. Right. I interviewed the team as a collective. Who are you as a collective? And then they answered. Then we uh. did improv training. And again, I interviewed them as individuals. And then at the end of improv training, I interviewed them as a collective. Who are you as a collective? And I think that one thing that, and I get confused with this too, is improv is not the show. Improv is not um, when, when we see the set, improv is not the edit. Like when you see the edit, improv is the process by which we create the show. And so like the process of the product kind of thing. And so many times we're like, oh, I just did improv referring to the show. Well, you did the process of improv. So like an edit, oh God. So an edit, everything happens at like an individual level. Liz Allen says, there's the bony finger of destiny. And when you feel that, that's the time to edit. I feel mm -hmm. that like, I always try, I always go with this edit fast, play slow, which I got from Jay Suko. So like, if you think that scene should be edit, edit it, fine, go and edit. Cause we can always come back to it. If that scene was fantastic, those characters were great. Mm -hmm. We can always come back to it because it's, it's better to edit a scene too soon 
and have the energy still be high, then edit it too slow and have to build that energy back up again. But people get so concerned. I didn't want to step on their toes. I didn't know if it was the right thing because just as much as you're supporting other people, you have to be empowered yourself to make decisions. Mm -hmm. So I think that like, although the decision may come as an individual, the decision for the individual is to operate in what's best for the collective. Well, that's true. But can you do that with some edits better than others? Sure. So uh, in my book, I talk about the seven different edits and, and there's five main and two lesser ones. And one of the edits I believe is called, you might call it something else. I call it the swarm edit where someone goes, you know, someone's on stage and go, I brought you toast from the, my motherland. And another person goes, I brought you toast from my motherland. And then everyone as a group re repeats that word over and go, repeats a gesture yep. and they all swarm the stage and then they all slowly disperse the stage and the next scene starts. Now that might be instigated by one individual person, but nothing is a pattern until the third person does it. That's what I always say. Like I, I have this exercise where it's like the first person does something and it might be the most brilliant idea in the world. But if no one supports it, we're never going to see that mm -hmm. scene. And someone might do something and it might be the mm -hmm. worst idea in the world. But if a second person supports it and a third person supports it, that's the pattern. That's the game we're playing. And that happens in politics. You might see politicians who have fantastic ideas to help the government. But if no one votes for them and no one supports them, it doesn't matter how great and productive those 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 ideas were. They disappear. So I always say the initiation is not as important as the support. It doesn't, I, I can, we, I'm sure you and I could do a scene where the initiation is someone sneezes accidentally and pull an amazing scene out of that. Mm -hmm. It's the support. It's not the initiation. So the edit right. might, the edit's more like. And high pollen count. And <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Another one is like, maybe like number two is like the organic edit. And this is the one where like, if there's a scene going on, two people are talking, the person editing, instead of sweeping, which is when you run by the front of the stage, instead of cut to, which is like an audible cue or tag outs, which is an audible cue and a tap on the shoulder, you mm -hmm. walk into the middle of their scene. Your, your energy does not acknowledge their energy. In fact, you might break the proxemics between two people to let them know, as a player, I acknowledge you're there, but my character is not part of your scene. And you just start talking into the next scene. And then another player comes on and goes, oh, I realized that David's starting a new scene. And that first scene kind of disappears. It kind of mimics like a slow fade in, in movie theaters because that first scene kind of slowly fades and the next scene kind of starts in the middle of it. And teams that do it, it, look, it looks polished. It look, and especially teams that practice mm -hmm. it, know when it's happening right away so that that edit happens so fast but they don't do a sweep they don't they don't sometimes people like kind of slap the air at each other to know like you're not in the scene kind of thing there's no like cut to right. um it just happens so smoothly and it makes the audience goes how did you know that was going to happen uh but once again yeah. that that's instigated by one person that's initiated by one person and then the support just makes it happen yeah because you can't really well i guess you can but to edit yourself when you're in the scene almost never works. I don't like it. No. I, the only reason I would like it actually is if it was a small team, like a duo, it's like, Oh, I want to edit to get to the next scene or maybe like a three person scene. It's like, okay. Yeah. Then you have yeah. to, because I think part of it, there's this thing called ironic detachment where it's, it got really big, like at the end of the nineties and improv, like everyone was doing ironic detachment. Yeah. And so like you and I are doing a scene and we're creating a reality and like, Oh, reality where, you know, we're, um, I don't know, butchers at the market and we butcher actually like broccoli instead of like big cuts of beef and we're doing the scene and we're creating the rally and someone mm -hmm. comes in who's doing ironic detachment and they go well that doesn't make sense and then the audience laughs because that's what the audience was thinking they put words mm -hmm. to what the audience was thinking but they're also breaking our reality and so now our job becomes twice as hard because yeah. we have to reinforce our reality all this hard work we've done 
Now we have to reinforce this reality and they can just kind of like be on the sidelines and be ironically detached and go broccoli. That Who wants to butcher that? And everyone keeps on laughing. And what that is, though, is that's a defense mechanism because they're saying, mm -hmm. I don't want to be emotionally affected by anything. They're being cool. Mm -hmm. Nothing emotionally affects me. Oh, that's weird. That's odd. So, yeah. Sorry, mm -hmm. I go off on tangents. So, no, no. <laughs> Isn't that improv anyways? <laughs> in many ways, right? Let's go back to the two-person edits. Sure. Because, like I said, you kind of have to figure out if you're going to be doing a two-person show that's not a two-person mono scene, I guess. You've got to figure out how to edit yourself. So what did those end up looking like in a way that allows for both the performers and the audience to see things, at least when it's done smoothly, move from one scene to the next? So I have done very few duos and trios. I really prefer like large scale ensembles from six to eight people. Like, cause I love seeing like, mm -hmm if a dragon appears and all of a sudden five people and two people are the wings and one person's the tail, like that kind of stuff just blows my mind. So I try to put myself in opportunities where I get to see that a lot. But then the good news is every time I've been a part of a trio or duo, it's been fantastic. Like I love it. But I think a lot of that mm -hmm. is control is people want to control. It's like, well, I like this person and I know we're going to do well. If we stick together, whereas six people kind of dilutes the ability yeah. to do well or read each other. Da, 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 da. Um, so you usually pick someone that you have like a bond with. So for example, my wife, my wife and I have done duos before. And it's like, of course we can read each other and all that kind of stuff. We can do crazy stuff. Well, now, now it's a trio. <laughs> now it is guys, a trio. He's been in three <laughs> improv shows and he's not even one yet. I'm so excited. Um, but, uh, so we can read each other and we have inside jokes to, we know how to make each other laugh and everything like that. But when I've seen it in shows mm -hmm. and with my wife, like it's, it's, pretty much reading of energies which becomes like posture emotion or i guess emoting is a better way of putting it voice mm -hmm. and so i so i've also done work like not necessarily in mind but in physical physical theater and i think improvisers learn these skills without realizing they learn them they kind of just, there's no class that goes how to mind picking up a cup and i've taken i've taught a class in like that mm -hmm. before and i've taken classes like that before so there's mm -hmm. something called, um, oh gosh, the first word is, there's motion, stop, then, I, then something I'm going to talk about, decay. Okay. If I'm picking All up right. a cup, my hand okay. moves to where it's going to be, and then the, that's one that's one right. step. I move, and then the second step is I, I stop and I create volume and weight, so my hand would make like a C shape to create like about the size of the All cup. Right. My wrist might lower to indicate that there's actually water. It's a little heavier. And then there's a secret step. And then decay is when you let go and, and then the cup, you put the cup down. Now that secret step, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think is so funny, is it's it's like called like a bump. It's called like a little shake. So that when you go take the cup, you do just a little shake. And that, for some reason, that little shake mm -hmm. solidifies to the audience. And I'm talking like a very small shake, a very small bump. Solidifies right. to the audience. Right. There's something there. It's not just boop. It's like, oh, there's, and, and some of it, it's like a really small, it's a very small shake. But mm -hmm. that little small shake is a little as I've seen people do that when they edit, they do a small shake and then they, they take up and then they take off, you know, they do a little and then they take off. Mm. Um, and so it's like <laughs> if I'm being this calm, casual character, but then I do this kind of sh and, I, and I move positions to where I was before that indicates to my scene partner that was an edit. Uh, let's let's uh, switch gears a little bit. So you started the improv boost. How long ago now? 2016, I believe. 
Um, for those who aren't familiar, you want to just give a 20-second uh, description of yes. it? Yes, it is social media pages. It's a fan page for improv. So I'm a fan of improv, even though I'm studying it. I, I'm a fan of it. So like if it was a celebrity, a fan page for Jason Moma, except now it's improv. So I'm a fan page for improv, stuff that I find really interesting, people I find really engaging, opportunities I find. That's what it is. In that experience, I think you have been able to uh, probably have a wider view of improv than many because you're also curating that page, at least on some level, you are. If you look back over the past couple years, what would you what would you say are some of the themes that you've seen develop in the improv ecosphere? Oh wow, you have fantastic questions. So you're asking what themes do I see develop in like the whole ecosphere, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, beyond the obvious, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to box you in, but I think in some ways there's a tendency to want to say, well, now it's all global. Well, okay, we got that part of it, but within that experience, what's come out of that, as well as whatever else you're seeing in the way we're sort of constructing our ourselves uh, as as a community in a new way. I'm going to try to hit something as an intersectionality of two things. The first thing I'm going to say is there's been a greater awareness of of inclusion and diversity. So, and that that unfolds into mm-hmm. BIPOC, it unfolds to LGBTQI, it unfolds into other things. So I think so I think like Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, all that kind of stuff at a certain level has a shininess to it. We can put that we can virtue signal that we can put that on a on a shirt. We can we can march to mm-hmm. that and everything. But then I think there's also other inclusivity that's not as shiny. That's also being uh, bringing brought to the forefront, which is fantastic. I love it. Like age, like, you know, older people want just learning improv for the first time at 50. You know, like all I think it's fantastic. Neurodiversity, mm-hmm. like all these things that might not have like a hashtag associated with them, but also deserve representation in the improv community, there's become an awareness for that, which is great. Okay. So that's one like line on this axis I'm going to talk about. The other thing, Mm -hmm. which is also good, but the way these two things intersect can sometimes be very destructive. The other thing that's good is there's been people that, that because of the, of the internet, you don't need a brick and mortar building to start an improv school. You can do it online with a Zoom account. So people in small cities who've always wanted to like meet other improvisers can like take classes in Chicago. They just have to. So people in India are connecting to people like in Los Angeles and that's crazy. But then people are also like putting up their own like business. Like, oh, I'm gonna start my own improv school, which is great because then you get all these diverse voices. Mm-hmm. And I, I might not have trained at these institutions, but that doesn't mean my skills still aren't valuable or my perspective isn't so valuable. Now, where it gets destructive is some people are like, I'm going to start my own improv school. What sort of training do you have? None. Okay, that doesn't mean you're bad, but it also means like you might be teaching Mm -hmm. bad skills or bad habits, you know? And so when you put that in an intersection of inclusion and diversity, especially with neurodiversity or people that have traumatic experiences in improv spaces, you might actually be doing something harmful by being like, oh, I have no experience, but I'm going to do this, right? So that intersection of like inclusion and diversity can be harmful for someone or harmful, actually can be harmful both to the teacher as well as the student if they're trying to include everyone and they don't have the skills to do so. So I see like mindfulness is like a big deal or for your own emotional health. And if you're dealing with someone and you trigger a traumatic uh, experience and you don't have therapist training, you might be Mm -hmm. doing harm to them and everybody else in the room. So 
that's something that that's an intersection I see where there's like more mm -hmm. inclusion and diversion, which is di diversity, which is great. And then also like anyone can do this kind of idea, like it, good improv can come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. But then the way those two things can intersect can sometimes be harmful. The training you're talking about, though, is not necessarily improv training. You're talking about teaching uh, pedagogical tools for when certain things present in the Absolutely. Classroom, and, and also so knowing like that yes. is not within my purview. I yeah. don't have the skill set to work with that. But I think sometimes people starting, like we talked about, people are like, we're new and I'm trying to establish my name here. It's like, I'll take anybody. You know, I'll, I have a little class of five people and two of them, you know, so I'm going to try my best with all of them. Like, so I think it's also knowing like when I, I, I've been coaching and teaching improv since 1995. So I have all these different skills and experiences associated mm -hmm. with performing improv not with um therapy not with therapy mm -hmm. like so i i've always said that although improv can feel therapeutic it's not therapy it's like hiking a mountain hiking a mountain can be like therapeutic mm -hmm. and like i needed that time alone and being in nature but it's not therapy if you're dealing with something that you really need to deal with so yeah i totally i totally agree with what you're saying about pedagogy have have you pursued those skills yourself or do you feel like they have accumulated over time for um, you I have not pursued the skills of how to help someone that has trauma. I've learned to, that as much as players need to set their boundaries, as much as a performer, I go with my boundaries. I don't like talking about this. I, as a teacher, have to go, these are my boundaries. Because I think part mm -hmm. of the ego is like, I'm a teacher. I can teach anybody. And that's not the truth. I, I don't have the skill set to teach anybody and everybody. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's also the ego of like, everyone should do improv because I do improv or because I like improv. And so not everyone should be or could, right. or has to be doing improv if they don't like it. They don't have to do improv. So I think I have to remove my ego going, I, I can't teach you. I'm sorry. I'm not the person with the skill sets to teach you. Or if you don't want to do improv, that's fine. Something I enjoy, you don't enjoy it. That's totally cool. I'll go watch your thing. That's totally fine. So I've only learned the skills of like, yeah. this is this is how best I can. These are the people that can help the best. And here's how I can best help people. Having the, I guess, humility to know when you can pull back from from it from the experience to know if i keep pushing at this or we don't set a boundary here then you're going to get you're going to get over your skis and all of a sudden you've got you've got a problem in the classroom and you certainly don't want to do any harm the improvisers oath should be like the hippocratic oath absolutely that's a fantastic no idea harm, i right? think it's a fantastic <laughs> idea um, another thing, so I've been studying collaboration and we also have like a very like glorified view of collaboration. We think that put six people in a room together and, mm -hmm. and if, and if I'm really good at being on time and, and you're really good at being detail oriented, we think that those good skills will come to the surface and the whole team will now be show up on time and be detail oriented. But the reality is you need to have yeah. a leader or, or a vision to go like, here's what we're aiming for because bad skills will come to the surface. If I'm late all the time and five other people see me being late, but get paid the amount of money, mm -hmm. get to do the show, it's good, da, 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 then everyone's going to start being late. And now we have mm -hmm. that bad habit of everyone being late. And if I'm like, kind of like, you're, you're detail oriented. I'm not, I just kind of go with the flow, kind of whatever it is. And other people seeing them, I'm putting less effort in, then they're going to uh, go, oh, well, then I don't have to put as much effort in. So collaboration right. can actually teach really bad habits. So we have to, that, as teachers, we have to be aware yeah. of that as well. But then not only as teachers, because part of it is like teachers almost like a pedestal. It's like, oh, I'm a teacher. I'm better than everyone else. No, a teaching is a tool. You're not better than anyone. You're a tool to pass on mm -hmm. information. Um, so as a teacher, we have to be aware of that in our students or, or as right. we're coaching as our teams. But as teachers, as a community, we have to be aware of us doing that as well. Yeah. 
I was just talking with someone. This is a little different scenario, but we were talking about group projects in uh, college or yeah. what have you. Uh, and uh, my conclusion was if you liked group projects in college, you're a bad person. Because <laughs> <laughs> it always seemed like it fell on one, two, or three people, but there was a bunch of people who are either coasting or <laughs> bringing down the team. I don't know. You just reminded me of the conversation. <laughs> I did like group projects, but I, you know, you can tell that like, I'm very like, you know, I have the improv boost and I run teams. I'm very driven right. um, because usually group projects meant that I could talk to people and then like, instead of like sitting yeah. there staring at the teacher, it's like, okay, this hour work on your group projects. I could crack jokes and drink soda. Let's do this. And it, it's not so like sit in your seat and don't get up unless you have to use the bathroom kind of. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you've been in the UK now for, what'd you say, four years? Yeah. Okay. So what do you think over the course of the four years, and it doesn't just have to be from the UK, but what do you think US improvisers have the most to learn from other contexts? Something that I think is, so I get asked similar questions to that a lot. And the, in, so the United States is a huge country. It's massive. Mm -hmm. So my experience in Los Angeles is going to be different than someone's experience like Will Loera in Florida or someone else's experience like John Gibertados in Minnesota. My experience in LA is going to be very different than those people because of the culture in the region and, and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Because I believe that when the United States first started, it tried to use Europe as like a, a, a mapping of like, okay, so we like that Europe has all these different countries that allowed for all these very specific signature voices and cultures to coexist with each other. So we want the United States to be like that. We want the states to have their own like voices and, and cultures. So they have state mottos and state birds and all that kind of stuff. And that's why you have like federal rights versus states' rights. Like that's why there's that big, um, there's that big. Um, Although about half the states, yeah, about half the states, I think, use the robin as the state bird. So <laughs> we didn't take advantage of that. <laughs> Not fully. <laughs> uh, no, but so, I, so from my experience, the United States, gosh, I'm going to speak very generally. And I speak because I am American. The United sure. States is very self-centered. And people from Americans are have this reputation internationally to be very self-centered travelers people typically like americans because a we spend a lot of money when we go places because we'll buy tiny little trinkets that we don't need and shirts that are produced for very inexpensive that says i heart whatever country we're in but we're also very we have this reputation for being very self-centered we have a reputation for being loud and drunk and then when we're traveling we be, we laugh louder and we talk louder than we need to because we think the world revolves around us and our noise does not permeate to other people's personal space also we have a reputation for getting angry there's like the american anger which we see like in social media as like the karen whatever it is but it's not just like white women it's like people everyone like uh, how dare you how do you know who i am kind of like thing and mm -hmm. sometimes we'll try to use our ego to push past a process that we just didn't take the time to read or find out about there's oh like mm -hmm. i remember i was in india one time and we were in varanasi and we were at this cafe that offered to speak english and they spoke very broken english and there was another american couple there and the woman like got so irritated and she said don't you speak english and i felt like i apologized to the waiter <laughs> afterwards like you're in another country you learned their language like yeah. so americans have that we think that the world revolves around us and we'll also like talk as if the world automatically knows our politics or our super our celebrities 
for mm. our references and we'll cultural see. references. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that mm. happens a lot in improv is that like Americans just assume that everyone knows what we're talking about. We did, I did a, a class with Liz Allen and the team was about, the class was about 50% American, 50% United Kingdom. I think there was also someone from the Philippines there, but like it was, we started doing a scene about trapper keepers and snap bracelets and all of us are having uh -huh. a great time. And then after the set, the people from United Kingdom were like, I have no idea what those things are because that's a very, yeah. those are very American yeah. ideals. So yeah. I think Americans could learn humility. And I think America, especially the, the difference between LA, because LA is definitely like a bunch of celebrities and people trying to become stars. Mm -hmm. When I was teaching LA, it was very much like trying to hold people back. No, you're part of the collective. Like, come on, you're part, you're, mm -hmm. your voice is just one of eight people here. So you, I want mm -hmm. you to express yourself, but I want you to listen as well to seven other people on your team. So it was a lot of kind of like pulling mm -hmm. people back and having humility, having awareness. Whereas in England, I find the opposite is typically true because there's like this this culture of like uh, stiff upper lip and eat cake, eat a cupcake and carry on, like pretend like nothing emotionally affects you. That when there's like group stuff, it's like, no, you step out. No, you be vulnerable. No, react with emotion. So it's like, like, it's okay for you to be yourself in this space. We're making it. So it's like in the United States, mm -hmm. I was pulling people back and in the United Kingdom, I'm pushing people out. Mm -hmm. So I think that Americans need to learn more humility and we need to listen and observe more in general i mean that, that's 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 a stereotype it's a generalization but those are kind of right because my right. wife and I also have a travel page so i focus on travel and different cultures and stuff like that so those are that's the reputation americans have is that we take up space like if we're at an airport we'll take up four seats and put our backpack on one seat charge our phone in another seat put our foot up on another seat and now we've taken up four seats when we're making other people stand kind of thing mm -hmm. so I, I think that we just need to be aware what what about the the other way? What what do you think U.S. improvisers have uh, best to contribute? U.S. improvisers? Yeah, just the U.S. improv experience in general. You know what what is what what is uh, what is something that the world would benefit? You know the most that they might not not might not have in their improv communities generally. So in the United Kingdom. Um, it was Keith Johnstone was like the major force driving it. And Keith Johnstone's theater sports more so had a director had like a, hi, I'm the host for today's evening. We're going to do this game and I'm going to tell the players what to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. You're this character. You're this character. You get out, you come in. And that was the show that was during the show. And oh gosh, this is, we're getting kind of deep in improv. But one of the reasons for that is because there's a time period in England when in order for a show to go up, it had to have a script to be approved to make sure there was nothing like right. raucous or dirty or anything in there. So improv was actually illegal mm -hmm. to perform. You could get arrested or fined for doing it. So they had to they had to bill improv as workshops. So I was a teacher. I was the host of a night. I was a teacher. Mm -hmm. So that was like, but that was kind of the underpinning of a lot of impro here was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna my, there's this format called the maestro. And the maestro is like someone that stands mm -hmm. off to the side and goes, edit, next scene. You two are in this next. So it's very directed, very didactic is the term didactic where mm -hmm. someone's directing it. Mm -hmm. Where the opposite of didactic is democratic. And an American improv has a more democratic ensemble feeling. So the Herald was a team that there was no one necessarily directing the Herald. There's a coach that coached it. But when, the when it went up on stage, there was no one like leading it. I think you should do this. I think that. Right. And so what that allows for is a more unilateral contribution of voices. So instead of having one director go, here's mm -hmm. the story that I want to tell, using you all as tools, everyone on stage goes, here's collaboratively, collectively, what the story we're going to tell. 
And that's also mm -hmm. very interesting to see. In my workshops, mm -hmm. I like to talk about like, you know, you can do something that's funny and do something to the power of one, but the audience is amazed would eight people do the same thing at the same time. If eight people are playing that one same game and it doesn't have to be incredibly funny, moves a little faster, a little energy, the audience is like, how did mm -hmm. you all know that? Is that scripted? Like, so mm -hmm. that's why improv started catching a very strong foothold in, in the United Kingdom because it was more ensemble. It was more like, oh, there's not one person directing it. It seems to be almost magical. We're all, all eight, who's directing it? Nobody is. All eight of us are contributing. How are you doing that? So mm -hmm. it really appealed. So the answer to your question is this ensemble um, shared voice, shared collective feeling in England is is really popular. It's what I like to do a lot. But it's also moving against what we talked about earlier, where there's one person who's who's a toxic leader in their community and they're used to being yeah. on top of the pyramid. So if they're empowering everyone to you can do it, everyone's peers here, that challenges their, their sense of control over the community. So they'll quote unquote teach ensemble. They'll quote unquote teach this like improv style, but ultimately what they're doing mm -hmm. is trying to tell everyone, but I'm still the funniest one. I'm still the one you need to be friends with to get cast on any teams. I'm still the teacher here. Mm -hmm. like. So I, I think, and I'm not saying there's not a, a huge amount, maybe 20% of the teachers, like it's not overwhelming amount of like toxic teachers in England. No, but I think if you have that much, I'm sorry, I don't mean to step on it, but just to finish the thought, if, if you have that high of a percent, it's just going to be out there, which means it's impacting more than 20% of the improvisers. Yes. Right? Absolutely. And then if, if that sort of, I, I, I don't know, that that notion that you somehow have to, you know, to suck up or, or, or coddle or impress or whatever, you know, cause I'll find that sometimes where it's kind of like, well, what's happening here? You're, you're, you're interacting with me in an odd way. You don't need my approval or whatever it is. This feels weird, but it's coming from somewhere. Right. So hopefully we can flush that out of the system, but it's still, 20% is, it's enough of a percent to do a lot of damage, but it's also, it's hard to get rid of, I guess, right? Especially since they're so entrenched in the making of improv. And one of the reasons why mm -hmm. these toxic teachers are toxic, why they have so much fear to give up control is because they were in their own city trying to champion improv when nobody knew what it was. So now, like yeah. they were there when only five people would come a night. And now that like, oh, 30 and 50 people are coming, it's like, I built this. This is my community. And the right. reality is like, it's not your community. It's right. our community, right? Uh, this is my community because yeah. this would not exist without me. And so they don't want that to be challenged because A, that's their hard work, historical hard work, which is fine. It's also their income. It's also their, their magnitude of the self. So if they're teaching like everyone, mm -hmm. you are enough and everybody's important, then someone's, someone like me is going to go, well, then I'm going to start my own team. And then the minute that yeah. I go, I'm going to start my own team that concept of family comes in and like, oh, you betrayed me. How dare you betray me? I'm the teacher here. Why don't you ask me if I wanted to be on your team or ask right. me permission? When I first moved here, there's someone locally who sent me an email saying, don't start, you can't start teaching. This is, this is my area. If you start teaching, you're taking money out of my plate. And this person lives a half hour away from me in another city. So I, I was like, so I contacted my friends in England. I'm like, is this a cultural thing? Is it like vampires where you're supposed to like introduce yourself to the main vampire first? <laughs> Otherwise you're disrespecting the vampires. They're like, nope, start your own team. 
So I just went, that's thank you for sharing that with me. I'm still going to start because I'm doing a master's thesis. I need to start an improv team, right? And they because you know, they realized yeah. they couldn't stop me. But just that audacity to go like, I own improv. I own the art form of improv within a half hour radius of where I live. Yeah, f- 15 minutes is typical, right? <laughs> that's twice as much as normal. No, just kidding. Yeah, 30 is aggressive. <laughs> but in LA, you'll find two different teachers in the same building, like much the less like... Not right, even like 15 minutes away from each other. Uh, Io and Second City were three blocks <laughs> away from each other. But then I went to a, another improv festival, and I, I won't say the name of it. And the the like, they're going to have a discussion at lunch. I mean, totally, if you want to go see this discussion, that's totally fine. So it was, it was really popular. A bunch of people went, and, and the discussion was how to start your own improv team. So I, oh, cool. I'm going to go mm-hmm. and see see what happens here. And I went there, and like, so the mm-hmm. two people running, how do you start your own improv team? And then a whiteboard, and like, okay. So do we have any comments? And the first thing that the person who was running the entire festival decided to show up and they said, yeah, don't start your own improv team. There's always an, there's already an improv company in your city. Join that improv company. They could use your support. Then this other person who's super influential says, I want to mirror what that person said. Don't start your own team. You're taking away valuable resources and time away from the improv company that's in that team, that in that city. And the third person's like, huh. I just want to reflect what they said. Don't start your imp-. And I'm like, these are three leaders that already, of course, have a huge influence in their cities. They don't want to see other teams. In fact, they showed up to the festival's free time to tell other improvisers not to start their own improv company. And I was like, that's mm. disgusting. Get the out of this, this, this. You don't be here. If you don't agree with it, don't be here. That's not what this is for. So I spoke immediately afterwards and I said, okay, well, I'm going to talk yeah. about some pragmatic steps. You want to start a contact? And I started like giving out lists. You want a contact sheet? So you get everyone's way of contacting them. And then you start having like a regular rehearsal time in the same spot at the same time. So people know to predict it. And I started like laying out these different steps. Cause I was like, how dare you? How dare it's like, can you imagine like painting in a city? If there's one person going, I'm the painter, no one else can paint in the city. It's, it's dumb. Right. Yeah. If you're going to advertise a class on how to do this, don't have your lesson be don't. <laughs> well, to be fair, it wasn't the people, the people running it were like, let's start an improv team. But the producer of the entire festival at this class showed up to oh. say, don't start like just to be like preventative to like intercede. I don't want anyone getting an idea that you can start. Your- well, that makes it in many ways even worse because if you're running a festival and you invited somebody in to teach a class and then you just, sh- just shoot down the whole yeah. class. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. There's so much to this abundance versus scarcity mentality that just is. That's like huge. one of my favorite. That's, that's definitely very Brene Brown abundance versus scarcity. That's one of my favorite things to talk about. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that is an hour conversation at least. So, um, well, we uh, we have a lot more that we could talk about, David. But before um, before we wrap up, and I'll I'll try to post this too. I know about your this improv book. We didn't actually talk much about the the contents of it. I don't know how much it you would say you would write a different book today versus when you wrote this. We'll just let that sit <laughs> unless you have a very specific answer off the top of your head. But you also said, I'll let you answer that if you'd like, but you also said that you are uh, curating additional books. And I I didn't know about all of those. So um, I'd like you to maybe just to share a little bit about that and how people can get access to those 
So can you just speak to that as sort of our kind of on our way out the door here? Sure. So one of the books is called, uh, can I get a suggestion? Because that's usually what you say at the top of a, a set. Can I get a suggestion? And the book is nothing but suggestions. So every team can just flip open a page and it has three suggestions that's set up to be like, uh, that improv short form game chain murder mystery, which is location, occupation, weapon. Mm-hmm. We can open it. And ah, okay. And then I also have uh, a series of books called answers from improv teachers, book one, book two, and I'm working on the third book right now. So I think when people look at the Improv Boost, they interact with this Improv Boost as if it were a school. And I get that because that's the most common social script we have. When we're interacting with someone that's not individual, we interact with Improv schools. So I interact Mm -hmm. with this entity as if it's an Improv school. So I get people asking me, like, I want to teach for you. And I'm like, well, I I don't have classes. I don't know. I don't. Or I get people going, can you share this thing? And I feel like going, well, did you share any of my stuff? Like, is it reciprocated? All this kind of stuff. And so people try to hold me to the same accountability that an entire school would have, even though I'm one person. And I, I, this is just like a fan page. It's nothing more than that. Right, right, right. When what I'm trying to do with the page is I'm trying to diversify the voices that contribute. So the answers from improv teachers is is one of the ways that I do this. When studying my MA, mm-hmm. I realized that there weren't there wasn't a lot of improv uh, literature out there. Um, because yeah. a lot, a lot of what I find very valuable, are like blogs and websites, because that is like people that are practicing it. It's very current and there's less gatekeeping. So you can find books like something wonderful right away, or you can find books like the compass players or second city beyond the stage, whatever. But these books are, are predominantly produced by people of privilege, people that already have access mm-hmm. to publishing companies, people that have the time and resources, whereas the people that interface with improv, especially in the beginning when Viola Spolin was doing it with immigrant children, weren't people that had this privilege. And that's also why it all of a sudden went from working with immigrant children to nothing but white, cisgendered, heterosexual males, because the people that have those resources, that privilege, are the people of access to those publishing companies and those acting and have the time to do teaching and taking the classes and whatnot. And I just think, it, you know, if you look at the path with Viola Spolin and the Compass Players, it intersects at the University of Chicago. Yes. Which is a highly privileged institution. And all of a sudden, that's where it diverged. Because if you look at improv today, I think you would agree that on average, it is a it is an art form that is predominantly... Uh, populated by folks with at least some level of privilege. Yes, I would say that for sure. Um, but I would mm-hmm. I would go a step further than what you said that the University of Chicago. I think that for a little while it's still tried, even though it didn't succeed. It yeah. still tried to represent the people. Like with David Shepard, it still tried to represent what's the working classes situation like. What's the everyman situation that we're going right. to bring up? But then he was out. Yeah, exactly. Then he was then, out. Then he got mm-hmm. taken out, and then you get this more franchisey, like everything is like mm-hmm. a brand kind of McDonald like globalization, globalization of improv. So in my MA, I'm like, I'm realizing that I'm just quoting white males in order to be to get approval from white males. Like in order to get my degree, mm-hmm. I have to have white males go, that's okay, because you repeated what white males said. And I was like, I I don't want that to be the because that's the discipline of ac- academia. Absolutely. Right. Yes. That, so if we could talk about academia, that's the whole thing too. And so, and so <laughs> I just want there to be more options. I wanted to like, I don't want everything mm-hmm. I quoted to be from like one white male. So another white male could approve that I, I was indoctrinated with, with their, with their teachings. Mm-hmm. So these answers from improv teachers is like people from the first book was like, just outside of London, you go to England and people are like, Oh, there's a lot of improv going on in London. Like there's, there's improv going on the entire country. Like 
so there's people from right. just I wanted to avoid anyone from London. And so it was like just a bunch of mm -hmm. improv teachers from all over the place and they're just contributing in people from the United States. Then mm -hmm. the second book, I never said this, but this is kind of what my goal was, is once again, all white males, they're all women except for one person. And so it wasn't like, I'm going to do an all-female improv book because I feel like sometimes when you do like the mm -hmm. all-female improv team, you don't put the qualifier all-male improv team. You don't you don't have to have that qualifier. Right. They're just teachers. They're not all-female teachers. It's just teachers. So the second mm -hmm. book was and it was like a focus on getting uh, more female-identifying uh, voices into the community. And so then also with the third book and then as it's moved on, there's like transgender, people from other countries, BIPOC. And so I just want there to be more. Mm -hmm. I just want if the next person behind me is trying to do an MA on improv, now they have three books where they can mm -hmm. quote people that are not white males if they don't want to, you know, that it's just another mm -hmm. option. Mm -hmm. I also do something on the improv boost called boost performers. And what I do is I interview. This is like the same vein, except it's free and it's on a mm -hmm. website. I interview improv performers. And my whole thing is I don't care where you've studied. I don't care if you've been doing improv for a year or 30 years. I, I don't, are you someone that intersects with improv? Then I want to hear your perspective on it. And so I try to get people mm -hmm. all over the world, people of different backgrounds. Like we had one who she did her, oh, she, she speaks solely Japanese. So her, her interviews in Japanese. And then I've also translated in Google translate to English as well, because there's mm -hmm. improv going on all over the place. And I don't want it just to be, because also yeah. like if you're from Chicago, then you've done real improv. It's like, no, there's improv all over the place. And there's some fantastic improv in, in Chester. Like I've seen some mm -hmm. sets where I'm like, you could put that on stage right now because that was amazing, you know? So that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring all these different voices to the forefront. And every now and then I'll do like a random interview with someone just, just because that's someone we don't hear enough from, all that kind of stuff. So those are the yeah. books, answers from improv teachers. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. I rambled a little bit. No, that's that's all right. And and where where do you find those? Those are on Amazon. The, the books themselves. Amazon. They are all on Amazon. Yeah. Okay, okay, very good. Well, uh, as I said, I'll make sure that we do have all those links and ways to connect. This has been a lot of fun, David. I really appreciate what you uh, do for the improv community. I appreciate you expanding voices, as you said, and I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts about this craft that you and I both love. Thank you so much. I feel like we could talk. I didn't even get to ask you some questions because I don't have all the answers. <laughs> I just have my perspective and my perspectives has a lot of questions. Like I have questions I could ask you that I'm like, how would you deal with X, Y, and Z? So yeah, thank you so much. I had a great time. You haven't, you're such, you're so insightful too. Oh my gosh, I am. That's the thing that I bring to the, <laughs> that's very nice of you to say. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully we talk again soon. Thanks, David. Sounds great. That was really fun. As I survey over the full conversation, I really appreciate how David has been able to carve out his own space in the improv world by seeking to elevate the visibility of others. I'm not sure this is a weird thing to say or a weird way to say it, but it seems like he's continued to grow in the balance of accentuating the voices and presence of others while not minimizing or overly maximizing himself. That's not super well said, but I encourage you to continue to watch with me how David models that now and in the years to come. We've considered the topic before, but David shared a lot of insights that can be really helpful in evaluating the health of your community's culture or to look at another way insights that can be helpful in fostering healthy culture. We're in a really interesting inflection point in how we are reconstituting and growing from here will determine a lot about the future of improv. 
All of these things go into the end product and can impact how you think about the quote-unquote little things like edits and show structure and how you approach improv classes and training. Lastly, I appreciated the continued learner vibe of this episode and conversation with David. To get more of that, check out the episode webpage with more info on David and links to him and his content. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, would you please share it with a friend and rate and subscribe to the Improv Comedy Connection as well? Please do the same for other podcasts that are making your life and your craft better. It doesn't take any time, but you really will make the other host's day by just taking a few seconds to click on five stars, or even better, write a uh, short, quick, encouraging review. I've been your host, Witt Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee. I'm with Fishsticks Comedy, and you can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media, at Witt Schiller, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also go to witschiller.com for additional content and resources to help you in your comedy or communication journey. I'm doing this to be of help to you and others as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.